If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would absolutely love for you to take that one home. The reason for that is pretty simple. We value God's Word here. We believe that God uses it in big ways for His purposes. Uh, that, that biggest purpose, there's all kinds of things rolled into that, but the biggest chief purpose is to show us who He is, to reveal Himself to His creation. And so if you want to know God, the best place to find Him is in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible. We'll call that a win. Uh, Genesis chapter 5. Um, so... Uh, we're a couple of weeks now into a new series that we're calling The Story of God. And, and we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. All right? uh, but we're in good company because it seems that Jesus also thinks that the Bible is completely about him. All right? And uh, a couple weeks ago when we kicked this series off, we looked at Luke 24. Jesus is walking down the road for seven miles from Jerusalem to a little tiny village called Emmaus with a couple of his followers. And in that conversation, in that seven-mile hike, uh, Jesus, who has disguised himself, they don't know it's him, is walking them through what Luke tells us is the writings of Moses and the prophets. Later on, he does the same thing with the rest of the disciples, and he adds the psalm to the list, so the whole Old Testament, right? that Jesus walks through the Old Testament explaining, quote, the things concerning himself. So Jesus walks these guys through the Old Testament going, that's about Jesus, and that's about Jesus, and that's about Jesus, and not just the, the prophecy stuff that we get to, all the messianic promises that are coming later, no, 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 the writings of Moses, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, right? the, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of Moses are dripping with shadows of a Jesus to come. Right? And so Jesus himself thinks that the Bible is about him. And either A, he's right, or B, he's a liar. And I'm going to go with option A. How about we go with option A? And so throughout this series, we're attempting to do the same thing. Walk through Old Testament stories and do our best to point to Jesus. And maybe you grew up in a church or have a church background that you didn't normally do that with stories like Adam, stories like Noah, like we're going to look at today, stories like Moses. We think these stories are really a shadow of a much bigger story about God, that while Adam and Moses and King David all have their roles to play, that the true hero, the true star of this story is Jesus himself. And when each of these stories are told as they're supposed to be told, forget about how they might have been told in the past. If these stories are told how they're supposed to be told, they ultimately help us understand the gospel better. The gospel isn't a New Testament reality, it's a whole Bible reality. And the Old Testament sets us up for success in that. And so, y'all ready to get into it this morning? We said last week that uh, in order to help us understand the bigger question of how does this story tell us about the story of God, this individual story, we need to answer four smaller questions well, all right? And so here they are. Um, how was this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And how does this story preach the gospel. We believe that if we knock out those four questions successfully, we can answer our much bigger question of how does this story tell us about the story of God incredibly well. So y'all ready to jump into Noah this morning? All right, let's do this. Let's give our guy some profile. Name, Noah. Nickname, the boat guy. A righteous man? Hmm, question. Totally not Moses, though I will mess that up. There's just something about the names Noah and Moses that for some reason in my head I get the wires cross sometimes, right? Are you any different than me? You're totally not different than me. All right. 
And so it's going to happen this morning. I'm going to accidentally call Noah Moses. All right, so somebody just keep a running count for me, and we'll add it up at the end, and y'all can tell me how many times I messed this up. But you're totally guilty of this too, so don't judge me. All right. Question number one, how was this person raised up? You ready to read? We've got a lot of Bible this morning. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man uh, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 108, or 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Uh, Kenan lived after he fathered, fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were nine, 895 years, and he died. How many of y'all, this is the first time you've ever read this. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. That's a name you've heard before. 22. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of all our hand, of our hands. 30. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So what do we do with all of that? Right? Well, a lot of people are going to spend most of their time worrying about whether or not they pronounce all those names correctly. Is it really Mahalalel? Other people are trying to do the math. So if he lived 182 years before his son was born and 595 years after his son was born, carried the one. A lot of people are going to get hung up on the math, right? But I want to direct our attention to something else this morning. It's the fact that everybody keeps dying. It's a consistent theme there, right? And yeah, they, they live for a long time, but they keep dying. Don't get hung up on whether or not Methuselah's 967 years really means 967 years. I'll give you a hint, though. It does. But don't get lost. Don't miss the forest for the trees here. Focus instead on the absolute monotony that year after year generation after generation, these guys keep killing over dead. The story always plays out the same. 
over and over and over and over and over again. And you got this weird thing here with Enoch that says that God took him. And Hebrews 11 clarifies that that happened before Enoch died. But that's one exception in thousands of years of the same old story. Generation after generation after generation after generation, and you need to feel the weight of this, this is why I keep repeating it, after generation, after generation, after generation, after generation. The same old story. The sin that entered into the world, that brought death with it, appears to be somewhat pervasive now, doesn't it? Everyone is affected by this, and the results are always the same. The results are always the same. People die. And so what went wrong in the garden didn't remain there. Everybody coming after Adam experiences the death that was promised to him as well. This is the weight that we need to feel in Genesis chapter 5. Yeah, there's life. There's a whole lot of death as well. And it touches Everybody. And so you end up with this really long list, a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again until verse 29 and the birth of Noah. And his dad, Lamech, prophetically pronounces over this kid, this kid is going to bring us relief. Lamech feels the weightiness of this cycle playing out over and over and over again. This kid's going to finally bring us relief. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Then a phylum were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, but I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, uh, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Uh, we believe a cubit is about a foot and a half, so you can do the math on that. All right. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door on the ark in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood, water, flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. 
They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God had commanded him. Skip down to chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, and on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, and them entered entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all uh, flesh... In which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Uh, skip down to verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed on the earth. And all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven that were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So what do we do with that? Well, we can, we can walk through it. And verses 1 through 4, chapter 6, are pretty interesting, right? People tend to have a lot of questions over that. Namely, who are these sons of God that are supposed to be having kids with daughters of earth? And who are these Nephilim characters? Like, don't we all kind of have questions about that? I, I, mean, I used to serve as a youth pastor. I've heard lots of questions about that. Interestingly enough, we have a Q&A. You write it down on the card and you try to... What do, we, what do we do with that? You want to know the answer? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've got ideas. I've got 12, I think, study Bibles. Probably half of them have the same answer. The other half are in other places. Those are all probably good answers. The Bible isn't really clear about who these people are. We've got some... We've got some ideas. I, can, I believe I've got an opinion that's strong enough to be held up in a debate kind of setting, but nothing that's a hill worth dying on. But again, don't miss the forest for the trees here. What's the overall tone of this chapter? The tone is found in the next two verses, right? Verses 5 and 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart only, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's the tone of the chapter. We can ignore who the, the Nephilim were for a moment, right? Because the next verse is God going, I'm getting rid of everything. There's sorrow here. 
God is watching as man multiplies on the earth. And as man does so, sin multiplies with him. Wickedness multiplies with him. God sees this multiplying sinfulness and he is going to do something about it. And what is he going to do? He's going to kill everybody and start over. Sweet little children's Bible story, right? God's going to flood the earth, drown everyone and everything. He's going to hit the, a giant reset button, wipe the slate clean, and start again. All right, kids, off to bed. God decides that he's going to judge his creation and kill everybody off. And some of you may be asking, is God allowed to do that? Yeah. The answer is yes. God is perfectly just in vindicating his holiness by cleansing the world of sin that doesn't belong there. Get out of my creation is his right to say. But there's also a problem. If God starts over, does that mean that Satan won? If God just wipes the slate clean, if God kills off every last human, does that mean that Satan was able to thwart something God did? Another question, do you think God likes to lose? If I don't like to lose, I think God probably doesn't like to lose either. Which means that verse 8 is the most important verse in the story of Noah. Did you catch it? But we'll come back to that later. Right now, we need to see that God raises up Noah to be a loophole. God is creating a plan to simultaneously vindicate his holiness, to, to judge sin rightfully, but at the very same time redeem a people for himself. And now we can quickly answer our other questions for the morning. Question number two. What made Noah a seemingly bad choice? Well, Noah is no better than Adam. Flip to Genesis 8. We'll skip over the flood narrative for a second because it'll take me another 10 minutes to read, but homework, let's go do that. All right. Uh, now let's get down to chapter 8, verse 20, and pick it up where Noah is getting off the boat. Verse 20. Uh, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every, living, every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. For the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and they said, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That sounds familiar. Uh, verse 18. Uh, yeah, verse 18. The sons of... Did I skip something? Hey, how about we skip down to verse 18? There you go. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on the sh both of their shoulders, and walked backward to cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew, that his youngest son, knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Okay, so shortly after they get off the boat, you've got this weird story about Noah getting drunk and falling asleep naked in front of his kids. 
Like, what do you, that's a weird story. And if it doesn't strike you as a weird story, we need to have a different conversation right after church is over. It's a weird story. But we need to be reminded of the fact that this is literally right after a supposed cleansing of the world from sin. Like, isn't that what the flood was all about? To wipe sin off the face of the earth? Literally wash it away? God has wiped the slate clean except for one man and his family. They literally stepped foot on a brand new sin-free creation. They are given the same command that is given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply, right? Noah even becomes a gardener. But it doesn't take long for Noah to fail because Noah is no better than Adam. The rest of the world may have been cleansed of sin, but sin still exists in Noah's heart. Noah is no better than Adam because Noah is a sinner just like Adam. Just like Adam. He carried his sin on the boat with him. There's a second thing we can point out. Because favor is an incredibly important word. Back in chapter 6, verse 8, we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there's a yes or no question that we have to answer this morning. The answer is pretty obvious, but good little church kids sometimes don't know the correct thing to say. Was Noah a sinner? Yes or no? There are implications to that answer. Right? If the answer is no, then there's a way for someone to be saved without Jesus. Right? If Noah is not a sinner, then he doesn't need to be saved. God owes it to him to rescue him on the boat. God is required to protect Noah in that moment. If Noah is righteous in and of himself, God has to save him. You also have to do some weird gymnastics to make that drunk naked story an innocent tale. If the answer is yes, if Noah is a sinner, then Noah cannot be righteous in and of himself. Noah cannot be righteous. But doesn't the Bible call him blameless? Yep. Calls him blameless after it says that God found favor, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that raises up the third question. How did God redeem him? The word favor is the Hebrew word chin. It means a feeling of favorable regard. Well, that's interesting. Okay. But then there's the Septuagint. Septuagint is a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right? uh, it was done in the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C. All right? So this was around in Jesus' day. Jesus and the, the New Testament writers had the Septuagint available to them. You may see that little abbreviation, LXX, as a footnote in your Bible sometimes, in the, in the New Testament sometimes. If they're uh, quoting Old Testament passages and it's coming from the Septuagint translation, you'll see that little LXX down in the footnotes. All right? uh, and so uh, they would have preferred... Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures, because it was their language, it was their culture, right? they, they knew Hebrew, right? and so like, that, that would have been what they used primarily, but they had the Septuagint and they were incredibly familiar with it. Right? Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
And in verse 8, the Septuagint translates that word favor with the Greek word charis. Charis is a word that we have talked about in here before. It's all over the New Testament. And whenever you see it in the New Testament, it's translated as the word grace. So in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it reads that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. Charis is the root word for our English word charity. We get our word charity from a Greek word. It's, it's the idea of a gift, right? You don't deserve a gift. You can't earn grace because the second you're earning anything, we're not talking about grace anymore, are we? In Ephesians 2, text that you are very familiar with now, Verses 8 and 9, Paul tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And that leads us to a second yes or no question for the morning. Does God change the rules of the game halfway through this story? Like by the time we get to Paul in the New Testament, by the time we get to the first century writings of the apostles, we are very clear that you don't come to God. You don't, you don't walk into his presence in and of yourself. Like you don't have enough in the bank account to stand before God as blameless, right? That, that you come to God having been cleansed by him, having been declared righteous by him, not because you brought anything to the table, but because you trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your behalf and he declared you righteousness he declared you righteous because of that trust right like we by the time we get to the gospel being spelled out for us in detail in the first century we know what the gospel is and so the question we have to ask is did God change the game halfway through the story or has the gospel always been that it's always been that right it is always then that you don't bring righteousness to the table in this deal. You have no inherent righteousness. You are declared righteous because you trust in he who is righteous. That's the gospel. Noah's righteousness is not something that came from Noah. Yes, he's called blameless later in the story. But, rather, but Noah is not righteous in himself. It was something that was gifted to him by God. God enabled and sustained Noah's righteousness, and God enabled and sustained Noah's walking with him. Just like us, Noah is saved by grace through faith. Just like us. Hebrews 11 makes this explicit. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. Noah trusted God and what he said, and it was accounted to him as righteous. Noah doesn't bring blamelessness to the table. God declares him blameless. And now we get to answer question number four for the morning. How does this story preach the gospel? Just like last week, we get two ways. One, 
God saves and uses Noah the exact same way he saves and uses us. Noah didn't bring anything to the table. He trusted God in faith, and that trust is exactly what God wants from you. We're, we're no different than Noah. Our story may, may be a little different, but the deal on the table is exactly the same. God calls Noah out of darkness, out of the, out of the surroundings of a lost world, a, a wicked creation. It says, trust me, follow me, hear me and do what I say. And God saves him. That's exactly what he calls you and I to. But there's a second thing we can point out this morning. It's to zoom out and look at the big picture. Do we see anything about the righteousness of Noah's wife in this story? Do we see anything about the righteousness of Noah's kids in this story? So why are they on the boat? Like Noah was the one that trusted God. Noah was the one who's accounted righteous. Noah is the one who uh, God chooses to save. Why are Noah's family on the boat? I mean, you can go with the pragmatic decision because they needed to repopulate the earth. Okay. What if it's a shadow of a much bigger story? Noah's family are bystanders in this story. God's not working out similar deals with them. Noah's not holding a raffle to get on the ark. He's not standing at the door punching golden tickets. Noah acts as a representative in this story. His righteousness is accounted to him and applied to others for their salvation. All those who are connected to he who is righteous gets the salvation he has purchased. Sound familiar? There will be one overarching theme to this series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And for our purposes today, God raised up Noah to be a shadow of a more perfect Noah to come in Jesus. Noah's story is a gospel story. The story of God is no small deal. Easily, easily the biggest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. It is playing out in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, and that is that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you press into God today, right? You do that by pressing into his word Listen, he is excited to make himself known to, you, known to you there. So press in. But we can take another step. Maybe you're more like Noah than you prefer to claim, at least out loud. You come to the table with God thinking you brought something he needs. Whatever that might be, hear me. He doesn't need it. It's probably already his anyways. You can't bring anything to him to sweeten this deal. What can you add to the sacrifice of Jesus? You kidding me? 
But Noah, with all of his flaws, came to the point where he trusted God. He trusted that God was who he said he was and that God would do what he said he would do. And he leaned in. That is exactly what God wants from you this morning. To hear him, to trust him, and to lean in. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's something that would be helpful for you this morning. If you're here this today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. You, you can respond this morning as well. How? By meeting the one that this story is all about. By meeting Jesus. God wants to save you the same way he saved Noah. There may not be a giant boat involved, but the end result's the same. To rescue you out of darkness into relationship with himself. There is wrath coming on sin and sinners, but those who place their hope in him are counted as righteous. Not because they have it all figured out. In fact, it's just the opposite. They are awakened to the understanding that they don't have it all figured out and that they can't have it all figured out. So they lean into the one who does. They emptied themselves and they clung to him instead. Today's a good day to cling. Today's a good day to cling to the one who's got it figured out. To repent of sin and follow Jesus as Lord. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We have a couple of people up front here to, to talk and pray with you. We'd love to walk you through what following Jesus looks like. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the story of Noah. Thank you for being a God who saves and always has been saving. God, just like Noah, I am surrounded by wickedness. Just like Noah, that wickedness exists in my own heart. But you are good. And you look on us with favor. And as a gracious act, you call us to yourself. And you wash us clean. And you declare us righteous. And you call us yours. And God, there will still be days when I mess this up. Even as Noah got off the boat and immediately everything fell apart again. I still struggle with sin. I still fall apart and fail completely. But still you call me yours. And my hope is not in my performance, but my hope is in your goodness and your character and your great love for us. And so as we sing, as we respond, would you give us courage to act on what you've been calling us to do? We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.